Hi, you're listening to Screen of the Crime. I'm Maggie, and it's a podcast where we talk about true crime and what would happen if your favorite movie and TV characters committed those crimes. And today, we have a special guest. Introduce yourself. Introduce yourself. Mm. I think of a really good introduction. So uh, my name is Raymond Gonzalez. Stop. Uh, this is <laughs> the name's uh, Pierre Papago, and I'm here to. Uh... You know what I'm saying. So our guest today is Coldier. I'm telling you, I had a really bomb intro in the shower, and then and then I forgot it once I got out the shower throwing that out there. All right. Um, Coldier has been on our podcast before, um, and he brought his own case when he did come on, and now he's filling in for Tess. So that's exciting. What have you been up to, Coldier? Can you hear me? <sighs> What's been going on with you, Coldier? Um, basically nothing. Doing absolutely nothing. Uh, living, living a dilapidated life full of dilapidated times or something like that. And watching an aggressive amount of rom-coms, rom-coms, rom-coms. Otherwise, pretty, pretty nothing. Doing nothing. Sounds great. <laughs> so, sounds like a fantastic time. Um, like <laughs> I have some news. So by the time this episode comes out, I'll be 21. And I will have started my job. So that's exciting. 21 and employed. Woo, that's all you could ask for. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to start with the notes that I have prepared for this day. <laughs> um, so I took these notes like four weeks ago. So bear with me as I try to remember. Are they going to be like outdated? Like, did you need to like update the wiki sources? No, but it's like 16 pages of stuff. So like, I, I forgot some stuff. It's fine. We're going to talk about the, what? My mom walked in and she's just sitting next to me. Hi, baby. Hi. I know Megan, she's so sweet. Are you sweet? Yeah. Megan, I know she's sweet. Yeah, my, the Lisey's camera. No worky properly. Unless there's a little thingy. No, I just no worky properly. Wow, what's wrong with them? I don't know. That's not I, I'm just assuming it's the app messing up, not our actual camera. Her camera's on. Also, why are you smacking what while you're doing? Yo, I'm an ear with the smacking. What kind of app are you using? Let's zoom. 
Okay, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna stop being awkward. Bye, can you see me? No. Bye. Bye, sugar. <laughs> she sounds so nice. That's what they all sound. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about the Unabomber. <laughs> okay. That was, not, that was not what I was expecting to be talked about was the Unabomber. I'm full of surprises. All right. So let's talk about his childhood. Yay. Um, so his name is Theodore John Kaczynski, and he was born on May 22nd, 1942. So his birthday is coming up. Um, in guess where? Wait, on, on what day? May 22nd. Oh, I thought you said January 2nd, and he was like, his birthday's coming up, and I'm like, how? <laughs> where? <laughs> it's coming up next year. Um, and he was born where? Chicago, Illinois, as expected. Uh, uh, to a working-class, second-generation Polish-American, Wanda Teresa and Theodore Richard Kaczynski a sausage maker. Um, his parents told his younger brother, David Kaczynski, that Ted had been a happy baby until severe hives forced him into hospital isolation with limited contact with others, and after which he showed little emotion for months. Wait, so, so, so he had hives Yes. as a toddler. Yeah like chicken pox hives or like I don't know like chicken pox aren't hives are they I've never had it I've never seen a person with hives so I have no clue like what they look like and what not I don't know they're like bumps on your skin uh, imagining like the sewer people from like Futurama mm. but I don't think it's that bad it just <laughs> no that's exactly what Ted Kaczynski looked like as a baby Oh, and that's why he had to be isolated. Logical, logical. Makes most sense. All right. Wanda recalled Ted recoiling from a picture of himself as an infant being held down by physicians examining his hives. So he doesn't like doctors. Um, she said he showed uh, sympathy to animals who were in charge. Oh, <laughs> I can't read. He showed sympathy for animals who were in cages or otherwise helpless, which he speculated stemmed from his experiences in hospital isolation. So he liked animals, which is the opposite of a sociopath, if you like animals. Um, from first to fourth grade, Kaczynski attended Sherman Elementary School in Chicago, where administrators described him as a healthy and well-adjusted child. In 1952, three years after David was born, the family moved to Southwest Suburban Evergreen Park, Illinois, and then Ted transferred to Evergreen Central Junior High School. Um, his IQ was 167, which is high, and so he skipped the sixth grade. Um, and Kaczynski later described this as a pivotal event, just like when you're gifted and how that like really frames your... Yeah adulthood um previously he had socialized with his peers and was even a leader but after skipping ahead he felt he did not fit in with the older children and was bullied 
Uh, neighbors in Evergreen Park later described the Kaczynski family as civic-minded folk, um, with one stating that the parents sacrificed everything they had for their children. Both Ted and David were intelligent, but Ted stood out in particular. One neighbor said she had, quote, never known anyone who had a brain like he did, while others said that Ted was strictly a loner. <laughs> oh, he had a unique brain, all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. My computer's about to die. Give me two whole seconds. Um, da -da -da -da. While another said that Ted was strictly a loner who didn't play and who didn't play dot 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 an old man before his time. His mother recalled Ted as a shy child who would become unresponsive if pressured in social situations. And at one point, she was so worried about Ted's social development that she considered entering him into a study for autistic children led by Bruno Bettelheim. Um, she decided against it after observing Bettelheim's abrupt and cold manner. In 1990, Ted's father, Theodore, uh, suffered from terminal cancer and committed suicide. Wait, his therapist did? What? Wait, you said his therapist suffered from cancer and, and did the no, his, his father. Oh. Ted's dad. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So in high school, um, Ted Kaczynski uh, excelled academically. He played the trombone in the marching band and was a member of the mathematics, biology, coin and German clubs, but was regarded as an outsider by his classmates. In 1996, a former classmate said, quote, he was never really seen as a person, as an individual personality. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak. <laughs> during, <laughs> during this, <laughs> what's with the, the reactions you're doing over Zoom? Okay. During this period, Kaczynski became intensely interested in mathematics, spending hours studying and solving advanced problems. He became associated with a group of like-minded boys interested in science and mathematics known as the Briefcase Boys for their penchant for carrying briefcases. One member of this group called Kaczynski um, the smartest kid in the class, just quiet and shy until he got to know him. Once he knew, once he knew you, you could he could talk and talk. Throughout high school, Kaczynski was ahead of his classmates academically. Placed in a more advanced mathematical class, mathematics class, he soon mastered the material. He skipped the eleventh grade, and by attending um, summer school, he graduated at age fifteen. He was one of his school's five national merit finalists and was encouraged to apply to Harvard. Harvard. I know I said that funny. He entered Harvard on a scholarship in 1958 at the age of 16. A classmate later said that Kaczynski was emotionally unprepared. Uh, quote, they packed him up and sent him to Harvard before he was ready. He didn't even have a driver's license. During his first year at Harvard, Kaczynski lived at 8 Prescott Street, which was designed to accommodate the youngest, most precious, that's not what it says, precocious, <laughs> 
It was designed uh, to accommodate the youngest and most precocious freshman in a small, intimate living space. And for the next three years, he lived at Elliott House. One of his suite mates there recalled that he avoided contact with others and, quote, would just rush through the suite, go into his room, and slam the door. Another said Kaczynski was reserved but regarded him as a genius. Quote, it's just an opinion, but Ted was brilliant. Other students stated Kaczynski was less socially averse than these uh, descriptions imply. An Elliott House resident who dined with Kaczynski at times called him very quiet but personable. He would enter into the discussion maybe a little less so than most, but he was certainly friendly. Kaczynski earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Mathematics from Harvard in 1962, and he finished with a 3.12 GPA, but had been expected to perform better. He had a 4.2 GPA? 3.12. Oh, yo, I don't know why I heard 4.2, but I was just like, you're supposed to do better than that? Wait, hold up, you're supposed to do better than a 3.12? These unrealistic standards that people are putting, that's why he became the Unabomber. It Makes the most sense. sense. Yeah. It all makes sense. Just let the man stay with his almost B plus. Listen, I think, you know what they say? C's get degrees, so. Exactly. Exactly. So, as a sophomore, Kaczynski participated in a study described by author Alston Chase as a purposely brutalized psychological experiment led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. Subjects were told that they would be debating personal philosophy with a fellow student and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. The essays were turned over to an anonymous attorney who in a later session would confirm and belittle the subject, sorry, would confront and belittle the subject, making vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks, using the content of the essays as ammunition, while electrodes monitor the subjects, uh, <laughs> I can't read, uh, physiological reactions. These encounters were filmed and the subjects' expressions of anger and rage were later played back to them repeatedly. The experiment lasted three years with someone verbally abusing and humiliating Kaczynski each week. Kaczynski spent 200 hours as part of the study. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> I think. Why would you keep going back? So many questions. <laughs> I just want to interview him and just really ask him some of these deep diving questions. Yeah, that's that sounds terrible. 300%. Three years of just weekly going in and just someone being like, you're shit. I'll never amount to anything. And you're like, uh-huh. <laughs> You were only good at five when you threw that baseball, kid. You should have got better than a 3.12 GPA. Garbage. Absolute garbage. You don't belong at Harvard. I don't care if you graduated at 15. Um, Kaczynski's lawyer later attributed his hostility towards mind control techniques to his participation in Murray's study. Some sort... I would, too. Um, some sources have suggested that Murray's experiments were part of Project MK Ultra, the Central Intelligence Agency's research into mind control. Um, Chase and others have also suggested that this experiment may have motivated Kaczynski's criminal activities. Maybe. 
1962, Kaczynski enrolled at the University of Michigan, where he earned his master's and doctoral degrees in mathematics um, in 1964 and 1967. What, 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 how old is he at this point? Uh... You're a math dude. Do some math. Okay. 1942 minus 64. 22. He's 22 and he's cut a doctorate. Wow. That's, um, he's like Spencer wow. Reed. <laughs> it's just, Maggie, I just, you know, you're going to have a master's by the time you're 22. And I just feel like you got to pick up the pace here. I just... <laughs> It all stemmed from the fact that I don't have a 167 IQ, so I wasn't able to skip forward in sixth grade and be bullied by my peers. So because I didn't have that push in my life, I don't think I was able to become a genius, you know? Okay, I guess that makes sense. I guess that makes sense. I never had hives as an infant. <laughs> so it was really... Was socially isolated as a baby? Oh. <laughs> so I was never to become... I, I, because of that, because of my lack of that incident, I, I can't have a doctorate at age 24, you know, it's yeah. just unfair, you know, life is just unfair. Exactly. He had it so great. Oh my God. Honestly. Being born in Chicago instead of Ohio. I mean, it's. <laughs> yeah, honestly, come on, whatever. Midwest. Okay. Where was I? Michigan was not the first choice for postgrad education. He had also applied to the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Chicago, both of which accepted him, but offered him no teaching positions or financial aid. Michigan offered him an annual grant of $2,310, which would be $19,343 today. Oh, you said that number, and I was like, I was like... Wow, they really just gave him one month of payment at minimum wage. And I was like, wait a second, oh yeah, this is the 60s, this is the 60s. Um, and they also gave him a teaching post. At the University of Michigan, Kaczynski specialized in complex analysis, specifically geometric function theory. His intellect and drive impressed his professors. Quote, he was unusual, nope, he was an unusual person, he was not like the other grad students. He was much more focused about his work. He had a drive to discover mathematical truth, said Professor Peter Duran. Quote, it is not enough to say he was smart, said George Pirinen, another one of the Michigan mathematics professors. Um, at Michigan, Kaczynski earned five... Pause. Yes. Coffee. I, I, threw, I threw my own little thing of coffee on the Keurig and then I forgot about it. Ah, uh, do we have coffee together? That's so cute. Yeah, my, my cup, you can't see it, but it says Jesus and coffee. Mine says um, hungover with floral arrangements around it. Wow. I know. We're <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Um, where was I? Oh, yes. He earned five B's and 12 A's in his 18 courses. Five B's, 12 A's. Oh. That doesn't. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. 
worry about it. Oh, oh one God. was like an athletic course. It was pass fail. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> However, in 2006, he said, his memories of the University of Michigan are not pleasant. And the fact that I o- not only passed my courses, except one physics course, there we go, we got their answer, but got quite a few A's shows how wretchedly low the standards were at Michigan. <clears throat> so if you go to the University of Michigan, uh, you suck, I guess. Just no domestic terrorist <laughs> thinks that y'all are a trash school. And that's it. Boom. Perfect. Perfect. In 1967, Kaczynski, oh my God, Dissertation, Boundary Functions, won the Sumner B. Meyer Prize for Michigan's Best Mathematics Dissertation of the Year. Alan Shields, his doctoral advisor, called it the best I've ever directed. I don't know what we're talking about. And the Maxwell Reed, the member, and Maxwell Reed, a member of his dissertation committee, said, "I would guess that maybe ten to twelve men in the country understood or appreciated it, because it was math, and math's hard to understand, as we know." Yes, Kaczynski published two journal articles related to his dissertation, and three more after leaving Michigan. In late 1967, the 25-year-old Kaczynski became the youngest assistant professor of mathematics in the history of University of California, Berkeley, up to that time where he taught undergraduate courses in geometry and calculus. His teaching evaluation suggested he was not well-liked by his students. He seemed uncomfortable teaching, taught straight from the textbook, and refused to answer questions. Imagine just like being like a little business student and you have to take calculus and you're sitting in there and you're like, I was just wondering. And he's like, no, I don't want to talk to you, but you're also the same age as him. That would suck. I mean, but doctor at 20, at 22, I mean, uh, well, he, uh, he was 70 years old. And as old, he was 70 at all points of time. He's always been 70. Yep. Since he got hives as a child. Yeah, ever, ever since that gave him the life experience he needed. <laughs> Without any explanation, Kaczynski resigned on June 30th, 1969. Nice. Um, at the time, the chairman of the mathematics department, J.W. Addison, called this a sudden and unexpected resignation. In 1996, vice chairman at Berkeley, Calvin C. Moore, said, Given Kaczynski's impressive dissertation and publications, he could have advanced up the ranks and been a senior member of the faculty today. In 1996, Los Angeles Times article stated, the field that Kaczynski worked in doesn't really exist today. So Why not? Math doesn't exist anymore, did you know? Uh, <laughs> why doesn't it? Like. <laughs> It was. It just says that they, the person, the article, got this um, from. This is according to mathematicians interviewed about his work. They were like, "Yeah, it doesn't exist." Dang, budget cuts really just be hurting like that, huh? Yeah, most of his theories were proven in the 1960s when Kaczynski worked um, in it. According to mathematician Donald Rung, Kaczynski probably would have gone on to some other area if he were to stay in mathematics. So, what do you do when you resign from University of California, Berkeley? 
Well, you moved to your parents' home in Lombard, Illinois, and then two years later in 1971 to a remote cabin that you built outside of Lincoln, Montana. Mm. where he could live a simple life with little money and without electricity or running water, working odd jobs and receiving some financial support from his family. It's all we've ever wanted. Exactly. No running water or electricity. Montana. Odd a little bit jobs. of support. Exactly. Support from daddy and mommy. Ooh. Ooh. What's he? I bet he has Doctorate his own at 22. Coffee. Exactly. His own Jesus and coffee cups. His own hungover mugs. He's ready. His original goal was to become self-sufficient so that he could live autonomously. He he taught himself survival skills such as tracking game, edible plant identification, organic farming, bow drilling, and other primitive technologies. He was playing Minecraft in Montana. You love to hear it. He used an old bicycle to get to town, and a volunteer at the local library said that he visited frequently to read classic works in their original languages. Other Lincoln residents said later that such a lifestyle was not unusual in the area. (laughs) Kaczynski decided it was impossible to live peacefully in nature because of the destruction of the wildlands around the cabin by real estate development and industrial projects. In response, he began performing acts of sabotage against nearby developments in 1975 and dedicated himself to reading about sociology and political philosophy, such as the works of Jacques Alol. What? <laughs> Jock? Yes, I'm going to say it's Jock Alol. It's like J A C Q U E S. It's Jock. It's Jock, yeah. Alol. E-L-L-U-L, hello. In an interview after his arrest, he recalled being shocked on a hike to, sorry, to one of his favorite wild spots. He said, here's a, here's a big ass quote. It's kind of rolling country, not flat. And when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very deep into a cliff-like drop off. And there was even a waterfall there. And it was about two days hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 18, nope, <laughs> until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin. So I decided I need some peace. I went back to the plateau. I know I said that weird. And when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. I was, from that point on, I decided rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. Yo, we we stand a vengeful king. In that 1999 interview, he described his loss of faith in the potential for reform. He uh, decided that the human tendency to take the path of least resistance meant that violent um, collapse was the only way to bring down the industrial technology system technological system oh gotta put yes here we go here's an excerpt okay they'll take the easy way out and giving up your car your television set your electricity is not the path of least resistance for most people as i see it i don't think there is any control or planned way in which we can dismantle the industry industrial system i think that the only way we will get rid of it 
is if it breaks down and collapses. The big problem is that people don't believe a revolution is possible and that it's not possible precisely because they do not believe it is possible. To a large extent, I think the eco-anarchist system, sorry, movement is accomplishing a great deal, but I think that we could do it better. The real revolutionaries should separate themselves from the reformers, and I think that it would be good if a conscious effort was being made to get as many people as possible introduced to the wilderness. In a general way, I think what has to be done is not to try and convince or persuade the majority of people that we are right as much as try to increase tension in society to the point where things start to break down, to create a situation where people get uncomfortable enough that they're going to rebel. So the question is, how do you increase those tensions? Now, to be well, honest, he kind of has a point. <laughs> well, I mean, most people normally, most extremists normally have uh, some slight bit of a point. And then, like, you look into it and you're like, oh, no, you're just slightly crazy. <laughs> I mean, his his idea of the revolution, though, that's um, that's pretty, that's pretty straight out of a, he got that straight out of a textbook. It's like some some borderline Malcolm X theorizing. A couple other people, everything Marquis de Lafayette. Maybe well, he he looked back at it. He was like, "Yo, mm-hmm, violence, let's go." You know, I support it. I'm talking more about like the wilderness. <laughs> I like he's like, "Stop killing the environment," and I'm like, "Yeah, you know." But then, but then he bombed people, and that's not cool, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, save the planet. But like peace. The question is So you said he was like sensitive with animals, like from a young age, on some weird like what was that? The dog whisper? On some weird levels of that. The the pet whisper, the show that was on like that came on after the dog, the bounty hunter on A and E, I think it was. Like the cat dude, the guy who comes in and, like, my cat from hell? What are you talking about? No, like, the guy that would, like, talk to all the different animals. So, like, if somebody, like, horse was just not doing anything, he'd come and do therapy. Bob Barker? That might have been his name. But he's just kind of, he just could talk to animals, basically. And he'd be like, yeah, this horse right here feels neglected because of such and such, and it has a rock inside of its shoe. You should get that out of it. And they'd be like, okay, get the rock out of the shoe, the horse is back to normal. And he, like, made a whole career off of that. That's nice. It's like a it's like a psychic, but for animals. Exactly. I'm just assuming that he might also be, like, a psychic, but for the environment. Like, he heard the trees the screeching trees like, out to him. I don't like it when they cut me down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly like that. All the little leaves were like, you know what you should do? You bomb should them. bomb a university. <laughs> exactly. They were they were they were so forth. They were like, please, sir, you're the only one that could possibly help us in Montana. You're crazy enough. And I wonder if he was vegan. I feel like he wasn't vegan, but he everything he's been saying this entire time, it makes him sound very vegan. Well which no, I mean, he's a hunter. Respect. He hunts. I know that. Which is even weirder. How is he more sensitive with animals? Because than it's them? natural. So, uh, you know? You're right. <laughs> corporations aren't raising the animals he eats. This is true. 
he's definitely going out there himself and um shank shanking, you know what I'm saying? Yep. Like a prison yard. Real quick walks away really fast so nobody can see it was him. Yeah, just like that. He doesn't even eat it. He just shanks it. No, he comes back with a body later. Look, you gotta, you gotta make sure nobody knows it was you in the first like twenty seconds or so, and then you can sneak back over, grab the body, and run. It's like you've never been in prison or something, bro. It's almost like that. <laughs> okay, okay, we're we're gonna talk about the bombings now. How fun! Yo. Between 1978 and 1995, Kaczynski mailed or hand delivered a series of increasingly a sophisticated bombs that cumulatively killed three people. That's and pretty. That's so. That's such a long career for only three people. I never knew it was such a low number. And injured twenty-three others. That's still such a low number for for what a seventeen-year career at this. Like, so. he wasn't good at it. What? That's he has like a PhD a, in math, not bomb making. That's like one and a half people per year. How are you that bad? At this? Oh, man. Oh, and man. all 16 bombs were attributed to Kaczynski. And only three people died. While the bomb <laughs> bombing devices varied widely through the years, all but the first few contained the initials FC, which Kaczynski later said stood for Freedom Club. <laughs> Inscribed yeah. on parts inside. He purposely left misleading clues in the devices and took extreme care in preparing them to avoid leaving fingerprints. Latent fingerprints on some of the devices did ma- not match the did not match those found on letters attributed to Kaczynski. So he put fake fingerprints in the bombs. Ooh, Ooh spooky. Okay. Kaczynski first mail, Kaczynski's first mail bomb was directed at Buckley Christ, Christ, a professor of materials engineering at Northwestern University. On May 25, 1978, a package bearing Christ's, Christ's, I don't know how to pronounce that, return address was found in a parking lot at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The package was returned to Christ, who was suspicious because he had not sent the package, so he contacted campus police. Officer Terry Marker opened the package, which exploded and injured his left hand. Kaczynski had uh, returned to Illinois for the May 1978 bombing and stayed there for a time to work with his father and brother at a... F- I thought his father was dead. We died later. You definitely said his father died of, of the cancer-suicide combo. His father died later. <laughs> sure. I don't... I can mention it. <laughs> <laughs> his fa- foam rubber factory. That's where he worked. However, in well, August... That's he got cancer. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Corporations. Yet again. Killing the people we love. Giving exactly. you hives. Oh, my God. Let's just bomb every factory on the planet. Every single one. Perfect. I'm, I'm going to send out pin bombs. And tape measure bombs. Yeah, they're going to try to measure the distance between a gap, and then boom, it's over for them. Okay. (laughs) 
However, in August 1978, he was fired by his brother for writing insulting limericks about a female supervisor whom he had briefly courted. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> oh. oh, I just didn't expect this. The amount of, oh, uh. <laughs> After how environmentally conscious he was, yeah, I should have known he was going to do this. The female supervisor later recalled Kaczynski as intelligent, quiet, but remembered little of their acquaintances and firmly denied that they had any romantic relationship. So he was an incel. Oh, should have known. It all makes sense. The initial 1970 bombing was followed by bombs sent to airline officials, and in 1979, a bomb was placed in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, a Boeing 727 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C. A faulty timing mechanism prevented the bomb from exploding, but it released smoke, which forced an emergency landing. Authorities said it had enough power to obliterate the plane had it exploded. But it didn't. As bombing an airline is a federal crime, the Bureau, the Federal Bureau of Investigation became involved, designating the case Unibom for University and Airline Bomber. Bomber. That's a dumb combination name. I don't like it. But isn't that crazy? That's what his name stands for. Yeah, University and Airline Bomber. Never knew that, and it just sounds you know. Now I don't like Unibomber as much. Unibomber kind of made it sound like a, like I always thought it was uni, like U-N-I. So I was like, it was like the single, the single bomber or something. I don't even know. I just don't like this one. Okay. Kaczynski left false clues in every bomb, which he had made hard to find to make them believable. The first clue was a metal plate stamped with the initials FC hidden somewhere, usually in the pipe and cap in every bomb. Another clue included a note left in a bomb that did not detonate. It read, uh, woo, W-U, dash, it works, I told you it would, dash, R-V. Another clue was the Eugene O'Neill $1 stamp used to send his boxes. He sent one bomb embedded in a copy of Sloan Wilson's novel, Ice Brothers. What did this mean? We don't know. The FBI, <laughs> the FBI theorized that Kaczynski had a theme of nature, trees, and wood in his crimes. He often included bits of tree branch and bark in his bombs, and targets selected included Percy Wood and Professor Leroy Wood. Crime writer Robert Graysmith noted, that his obsession with wood was a large factor. Just, just a large factor? It was, uh, that's it. That's all he noted. <laughs> Not like in his arrest or like in it catching, no, just a large factor. He's like, the wood, it was big. It was there. <laughs> the first serious injury in, 1989, in 1985 uh, was when John Hauser a graduate student and captain in the United States Air Force lost four fingers and vision in one eye. The bomb, like others of Kaczynski's, was handcrafted and made with wooden parts. That's weird. Hugh Scruton, a 38-year-old Sacramento, California computer store owner, was killed in 1985 by a nail and splinter 
loaded bomb placed in the parking lot of his store. I just feel like his targets are weird, you know? He's like, I want to kill anyone with the last name Wood and also a computer store owner. Yep. And it's like, it's like, no way it was at a huge computer store. It was like probably pretty small. Like It was just like the local radio shack and he's like, blow it up. Exactly. Like he had, a, he'd have to pick a place that wouldn't have like security cameras and whatnot. So like you'd have to pick something small. Yo, again, crazy people. Yo, they, they, uh, well, if they were less crazy, well, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing in the first place. But if they were less crazy, they could actually possibly have an impact on something because they'd be pointing all their crazy in like good ish directions. <laughs> yeah, if they were less crazy, they would be good people. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, like if they were slightly less crazy, but still crazy enough to to go through with killing people and whatnot, they'd be like aiming at like large corporations and whatnot, and they'd actually be they'd like if it was like in 2020, they'd be tackling the Amazons, the WalMarts, stuff like that. But it's like. But it's like they're too crazy to ever push it towards like somebody that like more people would be on your side about. Like if somebody like like sounds negative, but if somebody like killed like one of the owners of the Walmart family and whatnot, people are gonna be outraged about it. But there's gonna be enough people that are gonna be like, Yeah, that's right, eat the one percent. So it's like it's like he's not pointing as crazy in any create like any proper direction to start any type of revolution because well he's too crazy to do that. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So he's killing random people with the last name Wood trying to push some subliminal messages. You can just be really like overt with the message, kill a Rockefeller, call it a day. But he's not <laughs> doing that. And it's like if they were slightly less crazy, because he was smart if they were less crazy though. He could have been doing this in a different way and could have really, I don't know, like at least attempted a revolution that he was talking about doing. You know? I agree with what you're saying completely. If he could just, it's like go big or go home, you know? Like if you're going to make this revolution, aim high, you know? Don't aim low. Exactly. Killing a random grad student who happens to be in the Marines. Well, like making them lose fingers, that's not big. That's, that's yeah. The airplane that was almost big, and then he messed up. But then he fucked up with his bomb. Is he really a PhD student at twenty-two if he can't make a working bomb? Come exactly. on. Exactly. Shameful. On a timer, like what's wrong with him? <laughs> He's dumb. <laughs> a similar attack against a computer store occurred in Salt Lake City, Utah, on February twentieth, nineteen eighty-seven. The bomb, which was disguised as a piece of lumber, that's cool. What is he, PETA? Um, <laughs> injured Gary Wright when he attempted to remove it from the store's parking lot. The explosion severed nerves in Wright's left arm and propelled more than 200 pieces of shrapnel into his body. In 1993, after a six-year break, Kaczynski mailed the bomb to David Geller Gellertner, a computer science professor at Yale. Why do um, you hate the computer guys? <laughs> Yo. Because <laughs> computers, technology is taking over. It's killing the environment. 
computers are? Yeah, that's what he said. That's what he thinks. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, though critically injured, Gelletner recovered. In the same weekend, Kaczynski mailed the bomb to the home of Charles Epstein um, from the University of California, San Francisco, who lost several fingers upon opening it. Kaczynski then called Gelletner's brother, Joel, a behavioral geneticist, and told him, you are next. Um, geneticist Philip Sharp at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that's MIT for all you cool kids, <laughs> received a threatening letter two years later. In 1994, Burson Marsteller, executive, oh my God, Thomas J. Moisier, Moisier, was killed by a mail bomb sent to his home in North Caldwell, New Jersey. In another letter to the New York Times, Kaczynski said he, quote, blew up Thomas Moiser because Burston Marsteller helped Exxon clean up its public image after the Exxon Valdez incident. And more importantly, because its business is the development of techniques for ma manipulating people's attitudes. Uh, that, that pushes back in that whole uh, mind control hate that he had. Yeah. Ooh, he's consistent. I like this. <laughs> Ever since that psych experiment that he was involved in. Exactly. Ooh, that's $200. <laughs> it was followed by the 1995 murder of Gilbert Brent Murray, president of the Timber Industry Lobbying Group California Forestry Association, by a mail bomb addressed to a previous resident, William Dennison, who had retired. In 1995, Kaczynski mailed several letters to media outlets outlining his goals and demanding that his 35,000-word essay, Industri it's called Indu Industrial Society and Its Future, but it was dubbed the Unabomber Manifesto by the FBI, uh, be printed verbatim by a major newspaper. Imagine you're just like opening the New York Times and like, and it's just a 35,000-word essay. I... I can't even imagine how large that is a newspaper. Type like, one font. Like that's an entire like three pages. Like he stated that if this demand was not met, he would uh, sorry desist from terrorism. What a stroke! Like what just? <laughs> I've never seen the word before, and I like didn't know how to say it, because it's in quotations, it's desist from terrorism. Um, there was controversy as to whether the essay should be published, but Attorney General Janae Reno and FBI Director Louis Free recommended, Louis, I don't know I said Louis, Louis Free recommended his publication, its publication out of concern for public safety and in hopes that a reader would identify the author. Bob, Gushino, Gushin, Gushin. <laughs> give me a minute, Guccini, a penthouse volunteer, uh, sorry, oh my god, I'm having a stroke actually, <clears throat> Bob Guccini of Penthouse volunteered to publish it, but Kaczynski replied that Penthouse was less respectable than other publications. Okay, first off, he had incel and he hates, he hates naked women. <laughs> the worst kind of guy. How did he hate penthouses? That's naked women. I don't, oh my god. 
He said that he would reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill after our, oh my God. I got a fucking quotation. He said he would, quote, reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill after our manuscript has been published. The Washington Post published the essay on September 19th, 1995. Now let's get into the essay. Uh, You're about to okay. read all 35,000 words? <laughs> you better Please buckle up. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Got the bag of chips to my side. I'm ready. I'm ready Welcome to my audiobook. This is <laughs> the Unabomber Manifesto. Um, so the style of writing. Kaczynski wrote the document on a typewriter, therefore there were no italics. Um, so he capitalized entire words to show emphasis. He always, refer he always referred to himself as either we or FC, you know, Freedom Club, um, though there was no evidence that he worked with others. And academic Donald Wayne Foster analyzed the writing at the request of Kaczynski's defense team, and he noted that it contained irregular spellings and hyphenations and other linguistic idiosyncrasies, which led him to include, conclude that Kaczynski was its author. Because as we know, kid geniuses can't spell. Is that... That's not in the... That is was that just a fact? Like, just a, <laughs> a kid study? genius myself... It, that's why you, you can't, can't pronounce words. It all makes sense. I was able to say idiosyncrasies. I think the problem is I'm dumb. I don't know small words, but I can pronounce big words. You know what I mean? No, no. I don't think that makes sense at all. <laughs> I don't know either. I'm just dumb. Okay, let's get into a summary of it. <laughs> Industrial society and its future begins with Kaczynski's assertion, quote, the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. That's my Instagram bio. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, he writes that technology has had a destabilizing effect on society, has made life unfulfilling, and has caused widespread psychological suffering. Now imagine if he was, I mean, he's still alive, I think. Maybe, no, he's dead. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Now imagine if he wrote this during social media, as everyone has these same ideas. You know what I mean? He was just before yeah. his time. He would have racked up like 100,000, like, likes on Twitter, but then somebody would have retweeted it with like a funny quote and they would have racked up like 300,000. He would have had his own TED talk. And that's funny because his name's Ted. Mm. 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 I, I listen, side note, I listen, I'm digressing. There was a TED talk we watched in class and it was about how social media is actually making us feel more lonely as people because even though we're like, one step away from contacting anyone in the whole world through our phones, it's actually leading us to be more lonely in our personal lives. Don't think, and I think don't Ted think. Kaczynski would agree. This is true. I don't know if I fully agree with that take. I'll send you the TikTok. Like, yeah, I just feel like, yeah, I feel like social media makes people more comfortable, but it also, I think they're un not understanding the importance of internet friendships which I think are great. Granted, I play games, so I mean, like, my internet friendships definitely would eclipse any of yours that you might have 
from from your uh, <clears throat> Tumblr days, but I mean, it's whatever. <laughs> Tumblr days are still current. Did you know Tumblr has group chats now? Wow. <laughs> it's, they're awful. I'm a member of a couple. And I hate them all. Understandable, understandable. <laughs> Where was I? He argues that most people spend their time engaged in useless pursuits because of technological advances. He calls these surrogate activities, wherein people strive towards artificial goals, including scientific work, consumption of entertainment, and following sports teams. He predicts that future technological advances will lead to extensive human genetic engineering and that human beings will be adjusted to meet the needs of the social system rather than vice versa. He was ahead of his time. He believed. <laughs> this, this boy, oh my God. He's like, what is this deep as the ocean right now? Oh my God. <laughs> He believed that technological processes, oh my God, that technological process can be stopped, unlike people who understand technology's negative effects yet passively accept it as inevitable. He calls for a turn to wild nature. Kaczynski argues that the erosion of human freedom is a natural product of an industrial society because the quote, because, quote, the system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function, and that reform of the system is impossible because, quote, changes large enough to make a lasting difference in favor of freedom would not be initiated because it would be realized that they would gravely disrupt the system. However, <laughs> he states that the system has not yet fully achieved control over human behavior and is currently engaged in a desperate struggle to overcome certain problems that threaten its survival. Whoa. Like the system's a person, this is weird. All right. He predicts that if the system succeeds in acquiring sufficient control over human behavior quickly enough, it will probably survive. Otherwise, it will break down. And that the issue will most likely be resolved within the next several decades, say 40 to 100 years. He states that the task of those who oppose industrial society is to promote social stress and instability and to propagate an ideolo ideology that uh, opposes technology and that offers the counter ideal of nature in order to gain enthusiastic support. Are we following? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in it. A revolution against technology may be possible when industrial society is sufficiently unstable. Throughout the document, Kaczynski addresses left-wing politics as a movement. He defines leftivit oh my god. He defines leftism as quote mainly socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disabled activists, animal rights activists, and the like. And he's That's not right. <laughs> he states that leftism is driven primarily by feelings of inferiority and over-socialization and derides leftism as one of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world. That's still a vibe, still a vibe. <laughs> he additionally states that a movement that um, 
exalts nature and opposes technology must take a resolutely anti-leftist stance and must avoid all collaboration with leftists. As in his view, leftism is in the long run inconsistent inconsistent with wild nature, with human freedom, and with elimination of modern technology. He also criticizes conservatives, describing them as fools who whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological process and economic growth, which he's right about too. (sighs) They are fools. So let's talk about the reception of this amazing 35,000 word manifesto. Allison Chase reported in The Atlantic that the text was great was oh my god was greeted in 1995 by many throughout oh my god thoughtful people as a work of genius or at least profundity and as quite sane. Chase argues however that it is the work of neither a genius nor a maniac. It's um pessimism over the direction of civilization and its rejection of the modern world are shared especially with the country's most highly educated. UCLA political scientist professor James Q. Wilson was mentioned in the manifesto um, he wrote in the New Yorker, the industrial society and its future was a quote, carefully uh, reasoned, artfully written paper. If it is the work of a madman, then the writing of many political philosophers are scarcely more sane. So a lot of people liked it. David Skirbina, a philosophy professor at the University of Michigan and a former Green Party candidate for governor of Michigan, has written several essays in support of Kaczynski's ideas, one which is titled A Revolutionary for Our Times. Paul Kingsnorth, a former deputy editor of The Ecologist, <clears throat> sorry, and a co-founder of the Dark Mountain Project, wrote an essay for Orion Magazine, in which he described Kaczynski's argument as, quote, worryingly convincing and states that, um, states that they may change my life. Psychiatrist Keith Albo states on Fox News that Kaczynski was, quote, reprehensible for murdering and maiming people, but precisely correct in many of his ideas. He compares industrial society and its future to Aldous Huxley's Huxley's Brave New World and George Orwell's 1984. Um, Anarcho-primitivist authors such as Joan Zerzan and John Moore came to Kaczynski's defense while also holding reservations about his actions and ideas. They're like, he shouldn't have killed people, but he's right, you know? Those are like the best things ever right there. It's just like, uh, well, you know, did he go about it completely right? No, but... (laughs) Um, So let's get into the investigation. How they found the Unabomber. (sighs) Because the material used to make the mail bombs and the suspects... Oh my god. God, I can't read. I took... Side note. I took an Are You Dyslexic quiz online expecting an answer. And it was like, you'll get your results. And then when I finished the quiz, it was just like a green bar... And it was just like telling me about what I answered, but it didn't tell me if I was dyslexic or not. You know what I mean? What if I am? The internet's no help. Oh no, um, my older brother's dyslexic, and uh, you're reading 
skills are definitely better than his reading aloud skills. I would agree, but roughly 10 pages ago, I said a date wrong because I switched the letters. And I'm not going to back and correcting myself, but it was in 1996. It was 1960. Oh. I just think I'm a bad reader. (laughs) That could be it. Maybe if you wore your glasses, right? Check. Look. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe if I fixed my astigmatism, I'd be able to read. Yeah, maybe if you know you could, you know, see more than just blurry lines on a on a on a white screen, it might help you a little bit. Hot take, my hot take. I warned that it was a hot take that was going on right there, but you know, vision is important. I agree, but my glasses don't work well with my sunburns, so I'm not gonna wear them. This is true. It's just. It's just you're like seven different shades. It's really funny to look at. Oh, it hurts so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the bottom of your cheeks, but not the top of your cheeks. It's I like know. Your, what happened your nose there? Is super red, but but then under your eyes aren't. It's beautiful. It's it's it's. This is my. I have like such strong tank top tan lines. It hurts me deep inside. I can't wear a tank top for the next like 70 years until my skin tone turns back to normal. Anyway, where was I? Because of the material used to make the mail bombs, the suspect was labeled the junkyard bomber by the U.S. postal inspectors. Well, I like that. It sounds so much better than, yeah, so much better than Unabomber. But who initially had responsibility for the case, FBI Inspector Terry D. Turchy, was appointed to run the Unabom investigation. In 1979, an FBI-led task force that included 125 agents from the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is the ATF, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service was formed. The task force grew to more than 150 full-time personnel, but minute analysis of minute analysis of several components of the bombs and investigations into the lives of the victims uh, proved of little use in identifying the suspect who built his bombs primarily from scrap materials available almost anywhere. The victims, investigators later learned, were chosen irregularly from library research. In 1980, a vibe. In 1980, Chief Agent John Douglas, worked, uh, working with agents in the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, issued a psychological profile of the unidentified bomber. <laughs> like criminal minds, it described the offender as a man with above-average intelligence and a connection to academ- academia. His profile was later refined to characterize the offender as a neo-ludite, I don't know what that means, holding an academic degree in the hard sciences. But this psychologically based profile was discarded in 1983, even though it was correct. An alternative theory was developed by FBI analysts that concentrated on the physical evidence in recovering bomb fragments. In this rival profile, the suspect was characterized as a blue-collar airplane mechanic. So he was wrong. A 1-800 hotline was set up by the Unabom Task Force to take calls related to the investigation with a $1 million reward for anyone who could provide information leading to the Unabomber's capture. 
um, before the publication of Industrial Society and Its Future, Ted's brother, David Kaczynski, was encouraged by his wife to follow up on suspicions that Ted was the Unabomber. David was dismissive at first, but he began to take the likelihood more seriously after reading the manifesto a week after it was published in September of 1995. He searched through old family papers and found letters dating to the 1970s that Ted had sent uh, to newspapers to protest the abuses of technology using phrasing similar to the manifesto. The FBI were convinced that the bomber was from the Chicago area where he began his bombings. He worked in or had some connection to Salt Lake City and in the 1990s had some association with San Francisco Bay Area. This geographical information, as well as the wordings and excerpts from the manifesto that were released before the entire text of the manifesto was published, persuaded David's wife to urge her husband to read the manifesto. Dang, bro. Yo, yo. Oh, my. Yo. Your family members really ain't nothing, huh? Oh, man. I would call the cops on anyone in my family if they were killing people. Yo, I'd... Give them a little phone call, like, hey, yo, bro, did you? <laughs> do like, that Ted, first. stop it. <laughs> bro, come on. Remember when you, when you used to play tag outside, bro? What'd be you like, do? Ted, I know you got hives when you were a child, but you need to stop. <laughs> I understand. Think of the animals. Hours. <laughs> 200 hours, bro, of that study. Let's deal. <laughs> Ted, this is embarrassing. Your manifesto sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Why is there so many misspellings in it? Did you not have a did you not have an editor? Why did you capitalize random words, you weirdo? Exactly. Just go back through later on and underline the word like a normal person would. <laughs> Put them in quotations. God damn. Stupid. <laughs> um, after the manifesto was published, the FBI received over a thousand calls a day for months in response to its offer of a $1 million reward for information leading to the identification of the Unabomber. Many letters claiming to be from the Unabomber were also sent to the Unabom task force and thousands of suspect leads were reviewed um, while the FBI was occupied with new leads. Kaczynski's brother, David, hired private investigator Susan Swanson in Chicago to investigate uh, Ted's activities discreetly. David later hired Washington, D.C. attorney Tony, sorry, Tony, oh. <laughs> I thought it said Tom, uh, Tony Beskogegli, okay, to organize the evidence acquired by Swanson and make contact with the FBI given the presumed difficulty of attracting the FBI's attention. David wanted to protect his brother from the danger of an FBI raid, such as the Ruby Ridge or Waco siege. Um, since he feared violent outcomes from any attempt by the FBI's contact with his brother. I stand, no, does it, I stand the brother now. He knew, he knew cops aren't not, he was, he was like, these cops are going to bust in and shoot him. I just know it. So I'm not going to call him. Yep. Go David Kaczynski. Exactly. In early 1996, former FBI hostage negotiator and criminal profile Clinton R. Van Zandt, Zandt was contacted by an investigator working with uh, Tony. Uh, Tony asked Van Zant to compare the manifesto to typewritten copies of handwritten letters David had received from his brother. Uh, Van Zant initial, initial analysis determined that 
there was better than a 60% chance that the same person had written the manifestos, which had been in public circulation for half a year. Van Zant's second analysis, oh, second anal analytical team, determined an even higher likelihood. He recommended that Tony's client immediately contact the FBI. In February 1996, Tony gave a copy of the 1971 essay written by Ted Kaczynski to Molly Flynn at the FBI. She forwarded the essay to San Francisco-based task force FBI profile, profiler James R. Fitzgerald. Recognized similarities in the writings using logistic analysis and determined that the author of the essay and the manifesto were most certainly the same person. That was a lot. Combined with facts gleaned from the bombings and Kaczynski's life, the analysis provided uh, the basis for a search warrant signed by Terry Churchy and the head of the entire investigation. David Kaczynski had tried to remain anonymous, but he was soon identified. Within a few days, an FBI agent team was dispatched to interview David and his wife with their attorney in Washington, D.C. At this and subsequent meetings, David provided letters written by his brother in their original envelopes, allowing the FBI task force to use the postmark dates to add more details to their timeline of Ted's activities. David developed a respectful relationship with behavioral analysis special agent Kathleen M. Puckett, whom he met many times in Washington, D.C., Texas, Chicago, and Schenectady, New York. Schenectady. Schenectady? Schenectady. Schenectady? Yeah. New York. Over nearly two months before the federal search warrant was served at Kaczynski's cabin, um, David had once admired and emulated his older brother, but later decided to leave this, the survivalist lifestyle behind. He had received assurance from the FBI that he would remain anonymous and that his brother would not learn who had turned him in, but his identity was leaked to CBS News in April of 1996. CBS anchorman Dan Rather called FBI Director Louis Free, who requested 24 hours uh, before CBS broke the story on the evening news. The FBI scrambled to finish the search warrant and have it issued by the federal judge in Montana. Afterwards, an internal leak investigation was conducted by the FBI, but the source of the leak was never identified. FBI officials were not anonymous in identifying Ted, sorry, unanimous in identifying Ted as the author of the manifesto, and the search warrant noted that numerous experts believed that the manifesto had been written by another individual. But we all now know that it was written by Ted. Yeah, so, wait, what? So, I really, I thought this was about to get, like, so much more drama-filled. The moment you were, like, David got close to this other person that they met right? in Texas. And then he married her seven years later and divorced his wife. I, I was really expecting, like, some cheating side story. And I was like, ooh, this is about to be so juicy. Nah, him and the FBI just made, they became friends. Yeah, I'm like, oh, they actually just became besties. I'm like, oh, that's so upsetting. I really expected fun. some more drama coming out of this. Mm -hmm. Wife is like, I helped you realize this is your brother and turn him in, and then this is what you do to me. You cheat on me with the people trying to put him in jail. Wow. And I, I just want to know that story, you know? I just want to know it. Netflix should make a, a, a drama just like the Ted Bundy one, but it's all about David Kaczynski. And that's just like a side story. And he's like, by the way, my brother's bombing some people. Here's his essay. Exactly. And it's like, you never, you never know if it is him or not the entire time until the very end where they show like a clip of him like putting together the bomb or something. Hey, we should make and, this. Yeah, they call it 
extremely industrial, shockingly revolutionary society future. Some <laughs> really stupid blur of adjectives and and nouns. Perfect. Uh, FBI agents arrested Kaczynski on April 3rd, 1996, at his cabin, where he was found in an unkempt state. A search of his cabin revealed a cache of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments, descriptions of the Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready for mailing. Mailing. Uh, they also found what appeared to be the original typed manuscript of Industrial Society and its future. By this point, the Unabomber had been the target of the most expensive, nope, yes, I said that word right, <laughs> the most expensive investigation in FBI history. After his capture, theories emerged naming Kaczynski as the Zodiac Killer. Here's why. Among, <laughs> among the links that raised suspicion was the fact that Kaczynski lived in the San Francisco Bay Area from 1967 to 1969, the same period that most of the Zodiac confirmed killings occurred in California. That both individuals were highly intelligent with an interest in bombs and codes, and they both wrote letters to newspapers demanding the publication of their work with the threat of continued violence if the demand was not met. However, Kaczynski's whereabouts could not be verified for all of the killings, and the gun and knife murders committed by the Zodiac Killer different from Kaczynski's bombings, so he was not uh, further pursued as a suspect. Hey, that would have been a plot twist out the world, bro. It's like, and now I'm telling you, Jack the Ripper. (laughs) He's every unknown serial murderer. It's it's all Ted Kaczynski. He was the only one. It all makes sense. (sighs) Robert Graysmith, author of the 1986 book Zodiac, later made into a movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. called Zodiac. Not relevant. Said the similarities are fascinating, but purely coincidental. He's the same guy that said that Wood played an important role. It's just a large factor. (laughs) It's a big factor. But if you look into the Zodiac Killer, Wood was not a big factor, so. It doesn't line up. The pieces ain't falling together. The puzzle ain't meshing. The early hunt for the Unabomber portrayed a uh, perpetrator far different from the eventual suspect. Industrial society and its future consistently used we and our throughout. And at one point in 1993, investigators sought an individual whose first name was Nathan because the name was imprinted on the envelope of a letter sent to the media. When the case was presented to the public, authorities denied that there was ever anyone other than Kaczynski involved in the crime. A federal grand jury indicted Kaczynski in April of 1996 on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, and three counts of murder. Kaczynski's lawyer, headed by Montana federal public defender Michael Donahue and Judy Clark, attempted to enter an insanity defense to avoid the death penalty, but Kaczynski rejected the strategy. He's like, I'm not crazy. I ain't crazy, bro. It ain't me. Wait, hold up a second. I gotta, I gotta, oh, I don't think that's gonna work. Oh, maybe it will. Please hold. 
On January 8th, 1998, he requested to dismiss his lawyer and hire Tony Sierra as his counsel. Sierra had agreed not to use any insanity defense and instead based a defense on Kaczynski's... What? What? Is this the same guy that... uh? No, it's a different Tony. Is this the same guy? Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like very confused. I was like, wasn't that guy a magazine person? I was like, that's a pretty bold thing to do. <laughs> um, he instead used the defense of Kaczynski, oh my God, Kaczynski's anti-technology views. Oh my God, that was hard for me. This request was unsuccessful and Kaczynski subsequently tried to commit suicide by hanging on January 9th. Several though not all, forensic psychiatrists and psychologists who examined Kaczynski diagnosed him as having paranoid schizophrenia. Forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz said Kaczynski was not psychotic, but had a schizoid or a schizoidal personality disorder. In his 2010 book, Technological Slavery, Kaczynski said, that two prison psychologists who visited him frequently for four years told him that they saw no indication that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and the diagnosis was ridiculous and a political diagnosis. But I don't know if I believe Kaczynski. <laughs> On January 21st, 1998, Kaczynski was declared competent to stand trial, quote, despite the psychiatric diagnosis. Um, as he was fit to stand trial, prosecutors sought the death penalty, but Kaczynski avoided that by pleading guilty to all charges on January 22nd, 1998. He avoided everything. He was like, I'm going to beat you to the point here. I'm guilty. Got him. He's like, you can't kill me because I did it. <laughs> um, where was I? On January 22nd, 1998, and accepting uh, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. In 2006, Burrell ordered that items from Kaczynski's cabin be sold at a reasonably advertised internet auction. Items considered to be bomb-making materials, such as diagrams and recipes for bombs, were excluded. The net process went towards the $15 million dollars in restitution, Burrell had awarded Kaczynski's victims. Kaczynski's correspondence and other personal papers were also auctioned. Burrell ordered the removal before sale of references to those documents to Kaczynski's victims. Kaczynski unsuccessfully challenged those redactions as a violation of his freedom of speech. The auction raised $232,000. And I am the proud owner of Ted Kaczynski's cabin. <laughs> it was I, all me. I own specifically the view that he got after his two-day hike. Like, just the view. Not actual land. Just a view with the road right down the middle. That's all I wanted from it. <laughs> I have a diagram telling me how to get to that view, which has now been destroyed by technology and the future. Ted was right. 
Uh, Kaczynski is serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at ADX Florence, a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. When asked in 1999 if he was afraid of losing his mind in prison, Kaczynski replied, quote, no. What worries me is that I might, in a sense, adapt to this environment and come to be comfortable here and not resent it anymore. And I am afraid that as the years go by that I may forget. I may begin to lose my memories of the mountains and the woods. And that's what really worries me, that I might lose those memories and lose what sense of contact with wild nature in general. But I am not afraid that they're going to break my spirit. That's the exact same statement I made about this quarantine. That's, yep, and um, how's that one going for you? <laughs> Terribly. It's you think old. he's doing pretty well? <laughs> think my boy Ted, you think he's doing really well in prison to this day? Ted just like stares at the like cement wall in his cell and he's like, I miss you mountains. <laughs> he, he starts stealing chalk from the, from, the, from the recess time that they get. And he just starts scribbling on the wall. He is just like a, a square that looks like a window. And like every day he like draws a little sun in the corner. And he's like, oh, the free world. <laughs> the exact same view over and over. <laughs> it stays up for two days. Then he erases it and then creates the exact same view again. All with chalk from the window. In 2016, it was reported that Early in his imprisonment, Kaczynski had befriended Ramazi Youssef and Timothy McVeigh, the perpetrators of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the Oklahoma City bombing, respectively. <laughs> Why were they all in the same prison? Why were they all next to each other? <laughs> They're all buddies. It's a supermax prison. <laughs> Yeah, but even then, it's like, why were they in the same anything? Yeah, why were they? Why were they near each other? Were they just like, hey, bombing gang, bomb bomb? Oh, that's beautiful. The trio discussed religion and politics and formed a friendship which lasted until Mick Vey's execution in two thousand one. <laughs> Kaczynski's cabin was seized by the U.S. government and. <laughs> The friendship was over once that one guy was killed. He was really the bread and the butter of the friendship. <laughs> he was the glue. They stuck them all together, and then he died. It was like, what? Nothing in common. No more. <laughs> um, so Kaczynski's cabin is on display at the Museum in Washington, D.C., um, in October of 2005, Kaczynski offered to donate two rare books to the Melville J. Hirskovitz Library of African Studies at Northwestern University campus in Evanston, Illinois, the location of his first two attacks. Northwestern rejected the offer due to already having copies of the work. The Labadee Collection, part of the University of Michigan Special Collection Library, houses Kaczynski's correspondence with over 400 people since his arrest, including replies, legal documents, publications, and clippings. His writings are among the most popular selection in the University of Michigan Special Collection. The, identify, oh, the identity of most correspondence will remain sealed into, until 2049. 
In 2012, Kaczynski responded to Harvard Alumni Association directory inquiry for the 50th reunion of the class of 1996, I mean 1962, why can't I read? That's 69, 62, there we go. 1962. <laughs> so he responded to Harvard's Alumni Association for the 50th reunion um, and he listed his occupation as prisoner and his eight life sentences as awards. And that's the end that's, of my notes. That is so cute. Oh my God. That is adorable. I know. Wow. I wonder if that, what was that movie of My Friend Ted? I wonder if they actually made it all about him. It, it makes so much more sense, you know? Yeah. I haven't seen that movie, but. Neither have I. I don't th- actually, I probably have. I just cannot remember any of it. That's. <laughs> That's my normal with movies. I, I watch so many that I just, whoop, it's just in and out of my mind so fast. And I'm like, wow, that was underwhelming. Oh, I never knew all this about the Unabomber. I knew he was like a big person and a big case and that it made no sense how the cops found him. I, didn't, I never read into it, but I was like, how did cops find him if he was just sending stuff? I was like, ain't no way they had the infrastructure in the 80s to catch him. And now I know it's because his brother snitched. So <laughs> His brother snitched in the most respectable way possible and made a friend that will last a lifetime. This is true. When he should have cheated on his wife. Not that I condone that. I just think the story needs a little bit more drama. And I just feel like it lacked the drama. Like he was like, do I turn in my brother or not? But then once he already decided to, I was like, ah, oh, this is kind of drama free at the point. We need it. I'm just saying David should have spiced up his own life a little bit by purposely getting into an affair and then trying to go through a divorce while turning in his brother. Ooh. Ooh. What a great lifetime movie. Exactly. He could have really, he could have really cracked down on the movie deals and been a celebrity. Mm -hmm. He slapped. (laughs) More of the story. He slapped. Yeah. He could have been famous. I wonder if he's still alive today. David, I would I would assume so. Maybe. It's only been like 24 years. People can die. <laughs> yeah, debatably. Head killed three people. <laughs> yeah. It was such a seven, it was like a 17 year career. He made 16 bombs total. It put out three or four of those bombs in a singular year, 1985. And it was just like, wow. You really couldn't keep that same level of production up this whole time? Like, he lived on the land. Like, what was he... How could he just not... Do, like, what else was he doing? Postage costs money. And when you this live off true. the land and you work odd jobs in Montana, money's hard to come by. This is, this is true. You can't really ask your dad for... for oh, dad, can I get some money for some postage? Because your dad died in an unappointed time from suicide that we have no because clue of cancer. That because of cancer. You can't really ask, ask your brother, can I get postage money? Why do you always need postage money? Oh, no reason. I understand. How many, what, where were you mailing these packages? Where are they going? You're just like, some universities, some airplanes, <laughs> some computer stores, you know, some parking lots. Normal places. Come on, bro. What? You're, you're sending a package to a parking lot? Yeah. Just some people <laughs> whose last name is Wood, you know. Don't worry about it. 
Easy, easy peasy, easy peasy. I like that he did eventually, though, take, like, he went, he went for the, 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 like, a timber company lobbyist and, like, another company that, uh, that was, like, connected to Exxon. I like mm-hmm. that he eventually went big. His mind was and in the right place. <laughs> yeah, he eventually went big, and then, but his went, he went big, like, years before it happened, like, before he got caught, and then he just, he just stayed small. Like, he just stopped bombing. And I'm like, yo, they going to go big like that and then stop. He was working on his essay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've written a 35,000. You don't have time for bomb making when you're writing your 35,000 word manifesto. This is true. This is true. I I don't. I'm trying to think of how long 35,000 pages is. It's not. Is it pages? Or is it words? 35,000 words is. Yeah. That, I don't even know. I don't think I've ever written more than like twelve thousand words. That must have been like a ten-page paper. Let's I'm see. also a computer student, though, so I mean, we we hardly well, write papers anyway. So my notes on Ted Kaczynski are five thousand eight hundred and eighty words. So let's do the math here. You haven't said how many pages it is yet, though. That's the important part of math. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Dumb. It's 15 pages. <laughs> 15 pages? Is well, it like terribly like, spaced out? It's 14 and a half pages, and they're bulleted. Oh, okay. So 14 and a half pages? 11 point font. 11 point aerial font. Okay. Then you take away, we're keeping 11. You take away the bullets. That brings down the page count. Yeah, if you made it into paragraphs, it would probably be about eight pages-ish. Those bullets take up a lot of space. Yeah. it would be about eight, seven, eight pages, and that's 6,000. I mean, not that bad. It's only like 40-something pages. Quick, easy. That's a a short story. Yeah, he was writing on a typewriter, though, so I mean, like, that's even worse. That means... That means it was probably like 60 pages. Because typewriters, their answer space is massive sometimes. All right. So do you have a TV or movie to compare this to? Um, so I was thinking of one the entire time. I was, actually, I got like three in my head. But <laughs> so, hmm. There's like one easy one, and then there's one I think is slightly funny because it's nowhere near in the same vein. <laughs> and then there's another one that doesn't make any sense, but my mind's like, yeah, this is the one, bro. Um, time out. Tight. Ooh, it's about to be some typing. Yeah, you. <laughs> All right, you got your answer. Uh, no, this movie's extra. Ready? I didn't catch that last part. What was that? Okay, so check. 
I was I was gonna do I was gonna do Zodiac right, but then you mentioned Zodiac, so that's a low hanging fruit. And you know what they say from the screen of the crime. We don't do low hanging fruit or something. You say that all the time. I'll make shirts. <laughs> and so I'm going with um, <laughs> if this uh I mentioned him earlier, but if if this guy was a way crazier than he actually was and instead of instead of getting assassinated he 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 went even crazier and just ended up in jail and uh the character i'm doing is uh, the movie i'm doing is malcolm x sometimes stylized is just x i have i haven't seen that movie but, um, you should. It has Denzel Washington, and he is such a good-looking guy. He is. I agree. He the movie so well, and it's also directed by Spike Lee. And Spike Lee, controversial in his own right, but I feel like everybody should watch Spike Lee movies anyway. Didn't because Spike Lee make The Incredible Hulk with um the guy from Fight Club? Edward Norton. No. Okay. <laughs> No. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> no, it's fine. I just, I am, who would make an incredible Hulk director? Well, there's like that 17 was, million Incredible Hulks. Yeah, but I'm going specifically the one that was in 2008, right, with Edward Norton? Yeah. That was Louis Leterrier. Oh, what? He made the he made the transporter films, you know, with um Jason Statham, and now you see me. Oh, ma- magician movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, zero percent was Spike Lee. I, Spike I don't know Lee why that was in my brain. Yeah, Spike Lee is very anti anti superheroes. It seems like actually not anti. He's so pro-black that I feel like he's anti-superhero universe. But, so right, so this film, Denzel Washington, came out in 92, I just learned, which was way before I was born, like at least 10 years before I was born, 2002. Um, and so it's about Malcolm X's life, and it's like a kind of like a dramatiz- dramatization, dramatization, is it? Like- Dramatization. Yeah, there we go. Of like his, like when he was a criminal, his like him going to jail, joining the Nation of Islam, becoming like moving up in the ranks, his marriage, and like, and like his, him like going to Mecca and coming back and doing more talks and being this vigilant powerhouse in the civil rights movement. And and it also touches on his childhood a bit, like like his, his dad's death and whatnot. And it's beautiful. Great movie. Everybody should watch it. So that was a terrible synopsis of the movie. But basically, it's just Malcolm X's life. Extra drama because, well, it's a movie. You got to yeah, yeah, you gotta you know do what, what you got to do. Exactly. And the movie ends with uh, Malcolm X's... Uh, death or he was shot at a rally by also by other members of the nation of Islam 
Um, so, so the way the way this ties in to the unit bomber. Actually, I'm just gonna call him the junkyard bomber. I like that name so much better. All so, right. right. So junkyard bomber. Yeah, no, it's like. So. He was like. Well, he was crazy as a child. And with hives, so I mean, like you know, not exactly the same as Malcolm, but Malcolm's like mom was like mentally ill, and his dad did die. Like, what? How did his? I think his dad was like shot. His. Um, his dad was like a black rights activist, and he was shot by. Dang, who was he shot by? He was shot by another. He was shot by other black people as part of um. This this other. Was it? No, no, no! Oh, that's it. He was his dad was a black activist, and he was shot by by this racist group that I can't remember the name of. Was it the KKK? Uh, on this wiki page no very close to the kk it was the black legion and let me if i learn how to flip this camera around ooh, be a bad man jamma but this is what they look like oh wow yeah so they were just basically the kkk but but with black hoods on and a little skull and crossbones on their um on their robes and they had split off from the KKK in 1930. Um, uh, so his dad was killed. His mom was already suffering from mental illness. Her mental state deteriorated. She got admitted to a mental institution. And the cops just labeled his dad's death a suicide, even though, even though their house was burnt down and their dad was shot the same day. And they're like, no, nah, that was just suicide, bro. But like what? I was like, yeah, you can't get your life insurance policy now because he killed himself. So terrible childhood. Basically, the exact same as having hives. Yeah, I agree. Um, the hives, your whole family being messed up. You know, it's the same. We've all been exactly. there. Exactly. We've all been there. It's pretty typical things, you know. We've all Especially have hives. We all like go exactly. through our own personal hives you know mm -hmm. and his personal hives was the death of his father no money and his whole and all of his siblings going into into foster care yeah, yeah. beautiful um and then so right with that he he like slowly starts doing he gets like a few friends um, I know one of those name. One of those names is Rudy. That's the only one I remember. The name of is Rudy, and he. They start robbing. They just start, you know, robbing people. Uh, yeah, and I know. They, you know, basic normal stuff. Yeah. And and they get caught eventually with the robberies, and then he gets um a lot of years in prison. Like two of them got lesser sentences. Because it was like there was two girls and, and two guys, Malcolm and I think Rudy is another guy. Or maybe done No, nah, whatever. And, and so two of them get short sentences. Malcolm gets a pretty long sentence. He gets like eight, eight years, I think it is, or, some, or seven years, something like that. And 
and he meets a nation of Islam guy inside of there. And then that's where, so if we just, we just, instead of getting a doctorate at 22, right, Malcolm <laughs> just gets, gets arrested and spins, <laughs> spends like seven years in prison. And that's where, that's where the breakdown starts there. So like the guy with the doctorate, he uh, started seeing how, Right after that a period of time while he was teaching, he started to see that technology was bad, I'm assuming. Yeah. And he was like, I'm going to go live in the wilderness. Yeah. F these doctorate guys. I don't need them in my life. Malcolm, on the other hand, was in prison. And he was like, wow, I'm really out here in jail. And then he met a Nation of Islam guy uh, who was like his best friend throughout the rest of the movie. And he was like, yo, bro, convert to Islam. The problems, they won't just be solved, but we we're like a we handle it together. We pro black. We stay in the family. We understand white people are trash. That yeah. was like that was like basically all the motivation. That was the whole speech they basically gave him. And he was like, "You got dang right." And so, with that, they both they both get in the mistrust, and they're like, "We're gonna strike back, the white man, or we're gonna strike back at these tech corporations." Even though Malcolm's is slightly more logical than than striking back at the tech companies specifically for deforestation, but whatever, we're not gonna ever gonna jump us out of that bag of crazy. You don't understand. Ted's view was taken away <laughs> <laughs> by the tech company that put the road in the middle of the road. Exactly. Because Montana it's the is the same a thing as racism. This is true. <laughs> Montana is just a bastion of technology. That's just exactly where it should be. And, you know, the racism is basically a road lights only in the middle of a black man's view. Yo, the parallels? Wow. The parallels, bro? Um, And so then, how much do you know about Malcolm X? Very little. I'm a bad person. Oh, man. I know. um, So this is my weird comparison that I know about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King is to the X-Men movies is that Martin Luther King was like um, Professor X and Malcolm X was like Magneto. I'm not saying he's evil, but um, more on the lines of like, you know how... Professor X was like, hey, why can't we all just be equal mutants and normal human people? Um, And then Magneto was like, nah, man, mutants are better. And um, he wanted to fight. And that is the little bit I know. Um, We didn't learn. Yeah, that's like a pretty common, like, um, what is it? Comparison? Yeah, that's pretty common comparison that like a lot of people make. And it's like, not completely right, but it's like, I guess when it comes to energy that they were bringing, like, Malcolm was the much more like a quote unquote militant energy in the movement while. MLK was more on the, 
I'm like, can we all just get along, bro? Come on now. It's kind of dumb. Malcolm X was kind of like, white people, y'all really, y'all really out here just being evil and stuff. And, <laughs> and that, that was more of the energy he brought while Magneto was like on the side of like, uh, hey, yo, humans, y'all really just, y'all just really, y'all just really being negative. No reason. No reason to be a negative man. And, and that was like on the, on the, you can all get along still. Yeah, so like, it's like, same general. And so, with that, I mean, Malcolm just kind of, he started up the little talks and everything. He was in the Nation of Islam. He was pretty big with uh, the, the group's leader, um, Elijah Muhammad, who also slightly crazy, but that's a whole other topic. Um, and then, and then everything's just kind of, he's just slowly, not manifesto levels, or he's sending bombs out there to people. But let's just imagine he was in the middle of all these speeches saying that you have to kind of turn against the white man. You can't look for the white man for help. And it's like, unless they change, the world would never change, so we have to force them to change. He was also sending bombs to random white leaders' houses. Actually, no, he just started sending bombs first to people with the last name they White. white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he uh, started, started, you know, upgrading and sent it to anybody who worked at a I like a company with the word white in it. And then he went after politicians who were like very much preaching for whiteness. Then he was like the slow little, all slowly moving up in the rank of the nation of Islam mm-hmm. to being the figurehead. And then, oh, fun side story, nothing to do with this at all. But <laughs> in 1963, you know when JFK was assassinated? Yes. Malcolm X, he said, he said something so controversial yet so brave. He was like, he was like, oh, JFK dying? That is a literal embodiment of white violence. And it's just the chickens coming home to roost. And a lot of people got really upset with him for saying that. Like an aggressively a lot of people. Nation of Islam was like, Yo, bro, you cannot just say that. You're, you're ruining our public image. White people was like, yo, bro, what you even talking about? Why are they yelling? They just, they just slightly yelling. I don't even know what they're talking about. Hold up. It's, it's fine. And then so, so then Abbott was like, yo, bro, you can't say that about a president that was just assassinated. So then he got like suspended in the nation of Islam. And while he was also suspended, I'm pretty sure Elijah Muhammad had cheated on his wife. According to the stories, like the leader of Islam had cheated on his wife. And Malcolm X was like, wow, the leader of this whole organization is really a scumbag. And he started losing faith in the nation of Islam. And during that time, he was like, you know, forget this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to separate myself from the nation of Islam, make my own pro uh, Afro-American unity group. Mm-hmm. And changed his name to like El... L. To what? I gotta, look, I gotta look that one up too, cause it's that's a name. L. El Haj Malik El Shabazz, which also made the nation of Islam mad. You know, he had a long X in his name. He had changed his name to whatever this meant, which I don't know. But whatever. Actually, I feel like it has a meaning to the name. 
according to the doctrine, Shabazz is the name of the black architect whose tribe founded the populations of Africa. Okay. Okay. And he was uh this was this was him converting to a more orthodox Islamic uh, viewpoint. It was very separate from the uh, nation of Islam, which is why everybody got mad at it. And so so with that, he he like just switched over. And this is this is where the uh, he ties back into to the junkyard bomber, right? Mm-hmm. Junkyard bomber. His brother was the reason that got caught, right? So well remember from the movie anyway. I don't think we ever saw the brother again as soon as he went to the nation of Islam. High key. Flaw of the movie, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> so he um the nation of Islam had turned against him after he had separated and made his own group. Mm-hmm. And so he got a lot of death threats from the nation of Islam and his house was firebombed in like in like January of nineteen sixty five. Like they just they're just like boom boy, burn down. So um so he was just extremely against them. And we're gonna assume the nation of Islam, which was like his former brothers, because the brother also separated himself from Ted. David also separated himself from Ted a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for pulling and it so, back. Exactly. So David, David was snitching. The nation of Islam was like, don't worry, we'll take out the junkyard bomber for you. They mm-hmm. were just full on threatening Malcolm and full on attempting to firebomb him and whatnot. So then in February, um, he was given a speech at the Audubon Ballroom. He was given a speech at the Audubon Ballroom and then uh, and the nation of Islam people came up, three of them, with assault rifles. They sprayed him down, shot him down. Uh-huh. Um, and then, and then, and then, um, well. And that's the same as fact, David, figuratively. His brother. His brother, yeah, by sentencing him to jail. Exactly, with almost a death penalty. If he did not just say, no, 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 y'all can't kill me because I did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But fun fact about um, Malcolm's assassination, after he was shot, the whole crowd was so shocked that that when after it happened, the people tried to run out of the place. Mm-hmm. One of them got shot in the leg by one of Malcolm's bodyguards. And then all three of them, actually, I don't think, I think one of them escaped and two of them, they got jumped by the entire crowd. Like the guy who got shot in the leg was like nearly beat to death. Because the crowd just started stomping on the guy. Like, they dragged him outside into the streets while he was trying to escape and started curb stomping this guy. Wow. And it was just, it was like a beautiful moment of, like, how dare you shoot this man? Mm-hmm. We're going to literally kill you. And they probably would have literally killed him. But he actually did not die. And it's like, oh, this guy is still alive. Hmm. I just clicked on his name. Thomas Hagen. Magical. Magical, and he was just now released. No, he was released. Wrote okay, he was sentenced 85 years in prison to life imprisonment, but uh, apparently he's on parole, I think. Okay, which is 
Oh, I think, yeah, I think that's all. Oh, so in in the 1980s, he was allowed in a work release program, and he was allowed to go home five days a week, but wow. he was uh, not, he had to come back to prison for two days a week, which is odd. And he also earned that. a bachelor's and master's. It, the the going to jail like two days a week. They did that. Have you seen the movie Hustlers? The one with Lopez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the two women that were like sentenced, they like go to the jail, go to jail on weekends. They did. Oh, I did not even know that. Yeah, it's weird. I, it's odd. I don't. Yeah, I didn't know the. I didn't know that's what the movie was implying they were in because I just did not. I didn't peep that at all. <laughs> I just thought they had happened to get out on parole or something like that. That was my assumption in the movie. Well, like, not the main... It wasn't all of them, but it was, like, in, like, the final, like, when they did, like, the the text on the screen. Yeah, two of them are, like, in prison on weekends. Um, oh, okay. The other two, like, just got out. Yeah, just kind of, just kind of, you know, served yeah. a little half a year, and I was like, "Yeah, this is." Mm. Yeah, so that was uh, basically how those two. So Malcolm was just casually sending bombs you to know. the white people that he was he was speaking up against. So, like these stories uh, have a have a slight parallel with a uh, one of them had a substantially better childhood than the other one because you know. We all have our own personal hives, you know? You know? That's that's a fact. We've all had our own personal doctorate at 22. In our own way, we all have PhDs, except for me because I'm not 22 yet, but I'll get there, you know? Exactly. And I have a PhD that I got like. And. In six years when I do turn 22 because I was born in 2002. Keep telling yourself that. that it's called one. continuity. It's called continuity. I'm young. That's amazing. I'm only 18. You. I'm only 18. I'm ready for life. life is- <laughs> <laughs> fun fact about the movies, though, as you already know, that's how we do it. Screen of the crime. We come up with fun facts. Yes. Elijah Muhammad was he was not always the leader of uh, the nation of Islam. Well, like, he mainly was, but there was also this guy, Louis Farrakhan, Louis X, Louis, I'm assuming it's Louis, Louis Farrakhan, who was also a part of the nation of Islam, but, and he was pretty important. Like, he, he, he basically brought back the nation of Islam after it shut down for, after the whole... Malcolm X thing, they were kind of on a downhill slope from there. But mm-hmm. Louis Farrakhan, who also led the Million Man March in Washington, D.C., had a role in the movie, but he directly threatened Spike Lee. So Spike Lee cut him from the movie and then just gave some of his like stuff that he was supposed to do to Elijah Muhammad. Wow. And don't threaten directors. They'll literally yank you out of the movie. Yep. And... Yeah. And also Samuel L. Jackson was supposed to be in the movie, but mm-hmm. 
But he he wrote the role for Samuel L. Jackson, but Sam Jackson didn't end up doing the movie. Why? No clue. Sam Jackson hates black people. But what? (laughs) 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 That's and um. Um, is there any other fun facts I got about the movie? Um, oh, Angela Bassett played wife of Denzel. Betty X, who was a nurse. He was in the hospital for some reason, and he started dating this nurse, and then, and then she became Betty X. Yeah, fancy. And uh, also, Nelson Mandela delivered a speech to a school that quoted Malcolm right after Malcolm's death. And yeah, that's that's all I got. That's that's everything. it. Thank you. No problem. Also, I have to make sure my camera came on eventually because we have to see the fit with the nice vacation I shirt. The I love Yoda. your Hawaiian t-shirt. Thank you. It's, it's the literal only one I've ever had in my life. <laughs> oh my Jesus, well, it looks great. Oh, that's cute. Okay. All right. Um, thank you all for listening. <laughs> thank you so much, Coldier, for being um, my guest. Um, don't kill anyone. Uh, stay safe. Stay healthy. Uh, remember to, to take down the industrial revolution of technology in the most peaceful ways possible. Not sending, you know, bombs to people's houses named timber or wood. That's just rude. That's great advice. <laughs> 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 Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>